before today's show, I'd like to dedicate today's recording to Kay. Without your friendship back in the day, I wouldn't have seen so many movies. Whether that's a good or bad thing, I'll leave to you. We may have lost touch over the years, but the memories are still good ones. Rest in peace, my friend. That's right, it's time, it's time. Hey there cultists and welcome to our cult classics little mystery tour. Today we'll be picking up a six pack and boarding the bus to Santa Mira for our tour of the Silver Shamrock Factory, courtesy of Connell Cochran himself, as we take a look at what some would describe as the red-headed stepchild of the Halloween franchise, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. And if it's confusing to you regulars who are perhaps expecting analysis on another movie this time around, no, you didn't hear incorrectly last time. It's just that due to circumstances beyond our control, a scheduled look at killer clowns from outer space may not be quite going ahead as planned. It will get here, but when is anyone's guess at this moment? But fear not, we here at Cult Classics couldn't let Halloween come and go without a spooky review of some kind. So why not take a look at a movie named in honor of the holiday spirit? It may not be the film we needed, but right now it's the one we deserve. And what better film to cast our mass gaze upon than the infamous standout of that franchise? And let's be honest here, everyone and their dog will be looking at Michael Myers right now. We here at CC, we like to do things differently. So settle back, ignore what's going on around you, shut out the boss, ignore the kids on the bus, and you there in Hastings, put that finger down, the other driver's ignoring you anyway. So for the next hour and change, come with us. And don't forget the big giveaway after the show. But as usual, I won't be doing this alone. We've got some more guests joining us here at the Rose of Shannon Motel for our discussion on this one. Two newbies, in fact, not just to cult classics, but silver screen in general. I just hope they've packed well as I'm traveling light this week. I've had a lot of practice. So first up, we've got political staffer and recent winner of award for flash fiction. It's Athena. Welcome. Thank you. Great. How are you doing today? I can't complain. I'm getting ready for Halloween, so I'm excited to be on the show and review an interesting movie. I think that you're right, uh, describing it as the red-headed stepchild. It was one of, I think it came out, oh gosh, I was just a little kid, and this movie came out on TV a lot. So I avoided it since all the other kids said, that doesn't have Michael Myers in it. <laughs> <laughs> So I'll tell you a little bit more about how I finally watched it and how I came to love this movie. Nice. So would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, sure. Okay. So as you said, I'm a political staffer right now. Politics in America, it's a little bit like Mad Max right now out here. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's the best way to describe it. I feel like I'm strapped onto a vehicle and we're all just going forward. And um, it's not, it's... <sighs> Something else. So I'm glad to have Halloween break coming up and we have our other big holidays, but I'm a big fan of Halloween. So that's what I'm interested in. And I'm also a mystery writer. I won an award in 2019 for my flash fiction with Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine. So I love anything spooky. Well, I know you're, uh, you're quite 
quite the fan of this one today. So I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it. So, uh, yeah, also joining us today, he's an author, musician, filmmaker, content creator. One might say he's a renaissance man. He's the host of Planet Hex. It's Andrew. How are you doing, fella? Hello, mate. Uh, thank you for having me on. I'm Andrew Haunt. That's Haunt with a W because I think I'm the only person that well, my wife that can still get it right. Um, I uh, Yeah, I do Planet Hex on YouTube where I talk about a lot of VHS tapes. Uh, the other thing I am probably most known for is my book, VHS 8 My Brain, uh, of which I just put a revised version out. Um, like, it's like nine years old now, the original one. So I've done a revised version, corrected all the uh, bits I left out and made it better. And that's out now. Um, yes, I've been playing with um, a friend's band again i had a break of like 16 years from performing on stage been doing that again and that's hilarious that is a great deal of fun and yeah i'm really pleased to be here especially because i get to talk about halloween 3 which i have rewatched today and uh, it's it's uh, it held up i only saw it like a month ago i've got, right, I've got to rewatch it for this again and um, more than happy to rewatch this i think you may with myself and athena you maybe have some biased guests toward this film in favor of this film today that's okay. I think I think I think it might be three of us if I'm being completely honest. Uh, yeah, I should I should state that Andrew was originally slated to uh, appear with us on the Killer Clowns episode uh, because it means so much to him personally. Luckily, he's also able to adapt rather well. So, uh, my thanks, man, and apologies apologies for that uh, for that little mishap there with the episodes. I will talk about anything that has practical effects in it and came out on a tape basically oh, fantastic <laughs> <laughs> well that leads us into the next section actually so uh thank you obviously both for joining us here on cult classics now uh, as has become tradition since we started this one up we ask all our first timers the same question it gives the audience a little glimpse in at their psyche plus it also allows mike and me to have a little wager on the outcome but if I had to put it to you guys on the spot and ask you what you would consider your all-time favourite cult movie, what would it be? And I'm going to go to you first on this one, Andrew. You yourself can te confess tape head, so I'm counting on you to give yeah. us a good one right out of the gate. Right, straight away, I will say Trick or Treat, 1986, um, with uh, all the rock music in it by Fastway, uh, featuring the, uh, the tale of um, metalhead Eddie Weinbauer, who accidentally resurrects his fallen metal idol Sammy Kerr who comes back as a superpowered Freddy style demon but with lots of hairspray and um, starts laying waste to the neighborhood I really really love that movie and um, I've I have it on far too many formats um, <laughs> I have the video posters I've got the soundtrack um, I've had the soundtrack for years but I just went and checked what it was uh, going for on eBay and I I'm in two minds now do I do I depress myself and sell it no um <laughs> <laughs> a watch I was surprised about but yeah I'm absolutely obsessed with Trick or Treat um, the 1986 one not the 2009 one um, it has its detractors and to be honest I in some in some ways I am one of those detractors um, because it is not perfect by a long way but I I saw it at an impressionable age as I did many of the things that I, yeah, I'm still into now um, but I really love that, that dearly it spoke to me as a person um, with the um, the exploits of Eddie Weinbauer as like a bullied metalhead teenager. That was me growing up. And it also spoke to me because um, I got to see uh, a demon blow all the bullies up. And you know, <laughs> that was great. Isn't that, the so, one yeah, with, trick or treat. isn't that the one with Gene Simmons? It has Gene 
Simmons in it playing a DJ who is a friend of Eddie, the main character, and that gives him the the cursed record, uh, the unreleased record that has the soul of Sammy Kerr in it. It also has a cameo from Ozzy Osbourne. At the height of his infamy as the Prince of Darkness, it has a cameo from Ozzy Osbourne as a TV um, evangelist, um, which is just deliciously ironic. Oh, goodness. I remember that. I think I've only ever seen it once. It came out as part of a, a range back in the day of like horror movies to buy that and Dream Demon and Hills of Eyes. So I You're think thinking that's... of Palace Video, the Palace Video collection that had a that's the one. Oh, brightly coloured cover. Yeah, was it um, green? I have the... Yeah, that one was green. Um, I don't have that edition, but I do have the original X Rental one with the gold Palace box. Oh, um, nice. But yeah, that was, that was Palace Video. That also introduced me to Dream Demon, um, Evil Dead 2, um, Basket Case. There was some great... Night of the Demons, there's some great stuff in there. There is. Oh, God, you've brought back so many memories, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to... I've not seen it since then, so we might have to do that on Cult Classics and get you on board for that one. Go for it. I will defend it to the day I die, that film. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> and how about you, Athena? If you took, had to come up with just one choice, Desert Island pick, if you will, what would be your all-time favourite? The first one that popped into my head, and I'm going to go a little off the track because I, I wanted to pick a horror film. I love all the ones Andrew mentioned, but um, I think I'm going to go with one from The Emperor of Cult Classics, which is a David Lynch film, Wild at Heart. Um, you know, I, I saw that movie and those quotes constantly go through my head. It's a movie I love so much. I almost don't want to watch it too often because I want it to be this celebration and this um, almost rite of passage every time I watch it. Like, I feel like I'm watching it all over again. And um, I think that a big reason I love that movie so much, it's a romance for the rest of us. You know, people who are kind of a little bit strange. And David Lynch, I think, always is able to take those those strange thoughts we have, people who are writers, people who are creative, and he takes them into this whole other place, like, let me tap into this other part of your consciousness. Have you thought about this? And then turns you upside down. And I think Wild at Heart did that in such an interesting way. I'm also a big Nicolas Cage fan, and I think he is so charming in that movie. <laughs> I do love the uh, the Wizard of Oz aspects in that one. Yes. Yeah, and also interesting, interesting thing to note with Halloween 3, the man who played Connell Cochran, he uh, was in Twin Peaks. Yes. Yes. He was, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I forgot that you were a fellow Lynch fan. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No, I think I posted something in the uh, podcast Facebook group about it was a picture of David Lynch and John Waters, and they were at a Bob's Big Boy shaking hands. And there's something about those image with those two facing each other, smiling, that there's something that's very powerful about uh, two creative people getting together. And it's really radiating off both of them. Yeah. Yeah, I think Wild at Heart was my first Lynch Lynch movie. Uh, yeah, and my family and friends have regretted that ever since. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can I can well understand that. So that's that's awesome. We've got some uh, some solid choices there, and I'm sure you've already got some folks out there arguing both for and against them. So with that already, I've got to say, Athena's is way more classy than mine. Oh, That's man. a way classier this... choice than Trick or Treat. Nice one, Athena. <laughs> Mate, you should see some of the others that people have chosen. It's like, honestly, it's like watching an episode of Mystery Science Theatre. 
Right, so, <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's time to take a look at Movie at Hand, which is, of course, uh, Tommy Lee Wallace has directed Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Now, after the uh, relative success of the previous two installments, naturally, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill were the first part of call for the studio on the possibility of a third Halloween movie arose. However, the pair agreed to do so only on the proviso that it would not be a direct sequel to Halloween 2 and Michael Myers not be the focus of the new installment. Carpenter originally envisioned the Halloween films as an anthology series of movies, sort of the big budget Twilight Zone, telling a different Halloween-related tale in each piece. However, studio pressure led to Halloween 2 being a direct follow-up to the first movie. Now, with Halloween 3, the creators behind the franchise finally felt free to pursue that original anthology approach. And in this instance, instance sorry, the idea behind it was to create what they would term a pod, as in pod person movie, rather than a knife movie uh, to give the film a different take and a different vibe to its predecessors. To this end, the producers enlisted British science fiction writer Nigel Neal to write the original screenplay, primarily because Carpenter admired his Quatermass series. Neal stated his script did not include horror for horror's sake, adding the main story had to do with deception, psychological shocks rather than physical ones. Neal later had his name removed in dispute of alterations made to his initial outline. Now, filming took place around... Loletta, apologies if I pronounce that wrong, California shortly afterwards, and the movie premiered in the US on October 22nd, 1982, to mostly negative reviews and poor word of mouth. Not only was it the worst performing Halloween movie at that point, but it also lost out to other horror movies of the year, such as Poltergeist, Creepshow, and Friday the 13th Part 3. Moviegoers were expecting Myers again, and it didn't give them what they wanted, which added to the poor showing. As a result, Carpenter sold the rights, with the new owners bringing Myers and Loomis back in 88, with a little explanation of how they survived. To this day, Halloween 3 holds only a 50% score on Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic. However, in recent years, the film has seen a re-evaluation in some corners, gaining new fans and re-establishing its reputation as a cult film. And for those of you interested out there, Halloween 3 is currently available to stream, as well as being available on DVD, Blu-ray, 4K. And like one of our guests today, if you're a tape head and you're lucky, you can probably still find a copy on VHS, Betamax, Hell, even Laserdisc, should you so be inclined. So You can on all three. Once again, <laughs> you have? Oh, man, my, my, no, my you, respect. You can, you can just... get it on all three. It's cheap yeah. as well, don't we? Yeah. Oh. Do, you, do you have it? Uh, I have it on tape. I don't have it on Laserdisc, but it's uh, it's an easy one to come by because, again, like you said, it's uh, not seen as one of the more popular ones. No, no. So as usual, what, what I normally do now, I've got to ask you here, what was your first experience with this one? Athena's kind of started giving us that, uh, but I'm going to come over to you in a sec and you know, see where you first saw it. I think the first time I uh, I viewed this... It was late at night on BBC One. I was very young. It was the first movie in the franchise I'd seen. By that point, it was well into its, I don't know, fourth, maybe fifth instalment, and it had the reputation, as these things often do in the school playground. I sat there expectantly waiting for Myers to show up and waiting and waiting, and in the end feeling gypped that a commercial aside, he wasn't in there. I was disappointed, of course, but uh, at the same time, I found the premise 
utterly terrifying. So the uh, the next time it was on, I sat through it again. And the next time, I think, honestly, I think around that time, the BBC was showing this thing every few months, or at least it felt like it. I don't know how much the money they paid, but they were getting their money's worth. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I came, I came to be a fan of this one through exposure alone. But every single time it was on, I'd just be glued to the screen. I eventually got it on disc, and now it's a perennial in this house. Every year without fail, I get to see Tom drink, kick ass, and, and take names. So uh, how about you guys? How did you first come to this one? And again, I'll, I'll come to you first, Andrew. Um, I think I probably saw it on some of the same screenings you did. Um, but like with... Um, with with like what you said, it didn't have Michael in it. I saw this at the same time that I discovered the Friday the Thirteenth TV series that doesn't have Jason Voorhees in it. Oh gosh, yeah. So I thought, oh brilliant, Friday the Thirteenth TV series. Jason never showed up in that. Watch Halloween <laughs> Three: Season of the Witch. Michael never showed up in that. I'm like, what is everyone talking about? <laughs> Where are these characters? What's going on? Um, but yeah, I I really liked it. Um, and even though it didn't have Michael in it, I, I loved the, the feel of it and that sort of weird atmosphere. I would liken the atmosphere of it to Phantasm because it kind of crosses sci-fi and horror into this sort of Twilight Zone-esque thing. But yeah, I, I saw it around about the same time, but I was wondering what the hell was going on because there was, just, there was no Michael. Um, but over the years, it has grown to be my favourite by far of the series because it has no Michael. Um, because I think Michael's been a bit done to death now, but I'm sure we'll get to that. Yeah, I, I I think I'm joining you on board that that bus. So uh, yeah, Athena, how about you? Uh, you? You started to go into it. So what was your uh, your first experience of this one? My first experience was on television. It started to run a lot since it was a movie that was well free. Since it didn't have the greatest reviews, and I had the same experience you both did. Everyone on the school playground said, "Ah, oh, it doesn't have Michael Myers. Not worth your time." So then, okay, you know who's going to be a better um, influence on you than your friend? You know you're hanging out with and telling you, "Nah, it's not worth your time." You think, "Okay, whatever." So I'd skip it, and then one day, absolutely nothing else was on. I thought, "Okay, why not? I'll just watch it because." Hey, it's something to watch. So I turned it on and honestly, it blew my mind. Um, it was probably, let's see, it came out in 1982 and I would have been three years old. So this was, um, you know, since it had been played on TV for a while, I was oh, maybe like, I'd say 11, maybe 12. And um, it introduced me into something that I had not seen in horror and I had not seen in most movies at that age was the ending was it did cross into that sci-fi with androids and I always loved that stuff Star Wars Dune all of those types of movies I loved the 1970s movies where you know there was a surprise twist somebody was an android and this movie had everything and it had um this introduction to something in films where I think American films, what we're so used to, Die Hard and all the movies I love, Jurassic Park, this neat little ending where the hero saves the day and he kisses his lady and we all clap and cheer. And that's what Americans love. We go to the movies for it. We're still going to go see Jurassic Park movies and still cheering when the hero kisses the lady at the end and all the dinosaurs are back home and everyone's safe. So this movie ended on a whole other level where I was sitting there, the screen flashing like, wait what happens now <laughs> so, and I, I said i want to see more movies like that it started to instead of oh everything's wrapped up neatly we all walk out smiling with our popcorn it made me think but okay 
um, you know, should I write a story? Um, can I write about why was Connell Cocker doing this? It left all these open ends. And I love that because cinema doesn't do that. It, when it does, it tends to get bad reviews because people are like, that didn't make any sense. I'm not entertained. I want to know what happened. And um, I started to explore French cinema after that because French cinema I found had a lot of movies. There was this movie called The Vanishing. I don't remember the title in French. Maybe one of Andrew might. Um, but The Vanishing was then remade into an American movie and, of course, had a tied-up ending where the hero saved the day. And I was disappointed. I liked the French version where the hero didn't save the day. The hero woke up in this situation screaming. And uh, seeing that in this movie, the ending is so powerful to me because it leaves you afraid. And I think that's where we can find true horror is when um, the unknown. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just ask, were you both kind of into horror as a genre when you first saw it? Or, was, or did this, you know, was this the first stepping stone on your journey? I'd already found it. I'd already found it through, like, like you'd mentioned the, um, have you seen this in schoolyard? But my my introduction to the genre was uh, tapes. It was VHS tapes. It was in a corner shop. I was grotesquely underage, but they uh, allowed me to, to rent uh, in this corner shop. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street Three: Dream Warriors, uh, which is still one of my favourites, and A Day of the Dead, um, the Romero movie, and um, Trick or Tree and Basket Case. Um, and bear in mind, I was about 12. Can I rent these? Yeah, all right. And so I watched <laughs> those, and I've n I've never been the same since. And I've had a great time with it. So, um, yeah, it, um, Halloween 3 was a little bit after that, but my uh, my introduction was very early. And how do you think it ranks alongside, you know, say the other ones that you've mentioned? Um, at the time, I, don't, I didn't really see any as better than the others because i was still trying to learn about the uh, learn about the genre more about the genre itself so i watched those and i watched a lot of, a lot of other lesser sequels before seeing the originals like hills have eyes 2 which is terrible um and um what's the other one um yeah hills have eyes 2 and i've gone blank there was another there was another dreadful sequel but that was i saw everything the wrong way round. um so oh, i didn't okay. see what yeah. was more would be described as the classics until much later mainly because the lesser sequels to things like amityville 2 and so on that was it amityville 2 um were cheap they were like 199 in the sale bins and as a kid i could afford that <laughs> <laughs> so it was largely dictated by pocket money oh nice what about uh, what about you athena was this your first or I loved horror, I guess, starting about like eight or nine years old. I had older cousins who, you know, they let me kind of watch whatever I wanted. They were my babysitters. So, of course, they wanted to watch horror movies and, you know, the latest scary stuff and whatever everyone was talking about. So I guess I was like nine, maybe. I saw The Exorcist, which, as you can imagine, being nine and seeing that, I was just like, whoa. And I loved it. I mean, I kind of, you know, was like, uh, my older cousins are like, it's not real. You're fine. I'm just like, uh okay 
And being Catholic, I what was just like running around. Oh my gosh, I was running around Catholic school. Like everyone, y'all gotta see The Exorcist. <laughs> it was a great movie, and um, it's actually my favorite horror movie of all time. I mean, I, I, my favorite movie of horror to- of all time. I think we talked about this, Silence of the Lambs. But I think The Exorcist is the best one made. I think it's a work of art. I've read so much about it, the actors, um, the writers. I'm a big fan of the man who wrote that and wrote, you know, I've written or read everything else he's written. Um, And I think that's just one of the best made films of all time and even surpassing horror genre. It's just one of the best films ever. Um, And I loved Aliens. I saw that when I was really young and um, then started watching all those movies. You know, the first one I liked. I liked the second one a little bit better because watching Sigourney Weaver as Ripley was so instrumental in my personality as a young person. And really, you know, being kind of a shy kid who just liked movies and liked to read, watching her as a heroine and uh, what she did in Aliens really gave me the inspiration to be the strong, smart woman to go out and get into the field. I started getting into coding in college and wanting to be very powerful and do things with my life and get into science. And so, I mean, horror has been this great influence. I know it sounds crazy, but it's been this great influence on my personality in my life. Well, I, I know for a fact now that you've instantly got a fan because me and Mike argue often about which is the better, Alien or Aliens, and he goes for Aliens, so he'll be singing your praises right now. <laughs> it's a uh, great movie. That's because really he's is. right, mate. He's, oh, he's no, right. I'm, I'm still sticking with the original. I'm still sticking with the original. Damn you all. Damn you all to hell. And, uh, so, Athena, how do you think this this ranks alongside the other horrorings from you know the other off, uh, horror offerings from that period? Does it does it you know it still kind of tickle that fancy for you? Or I think that because of some of the the elements of this movie that were so different, it still really appeals to me. I still watch it, and I still you know every time that ending gets me. Um, I think that the acting was really good in it. Tom Atkins, you know, for what it was, some of that. I, yeah, I mean, you can tell watching it, there is some B-movie elements for the time, for 1982. A lot of the um, effects are pretty, you know, on par with some of the other films. Um, you know, and they didn't have a huge budget. So I try to take that into account. And they worked, they did really well with what they had. I think that because, you know, I think that if we tried to compare the two movies, like The Exorcist and The Halloween 3, okay, you know, you're obviously going to say, okay, The Exorcist is better made because of the directors we they had, because of the, the storyline they had, everybody, you know, pitched in on that film, and also the star power they had, you know, and uh, same with something like The Shining, you know, you, you have Jack Nicholson, of course, you're going to have, and Stanley Kubrick, you're going to have this film that just blows everyone out of the water, um, Poltergeist, I think, too, had some of that star firepower. And Halloween 3, while the, the acting was a lot of fun, I would say, Tom, he reminded me a little bit of Chuck Norris in some scenes, which I love. <laughs> but it's a little bit cheesy. So yeah. I would say you have to kind of almost appreciate it for what it is, where you're going to see him constantly putting his fists up in the air and waving them around, you know. And it's it's got those sort of action movie B elements to it too. Cool. Well, we'll, we'll take a look at uh, your thoughts on specific elements shortly. But before we get to the actual discussion, we'll take a customary look uh, behind the scenes. Now, as usual, while we've endeavoured to find something new for this section, the majority of this will be known to fans. 
probably even common knowledge. So if you don't want to have to sit through all this stuff, then I do recommend skipping ahead a few minutes. And as always, while the spoiler moratorium on these things have long since passed, if you've not seen the movie, and why not, it may be best to skip it and maybe the podcast entirely and return to us after you've viewed it, if you don't want this thing being ruined for you. So with that in mind, we'll start off on the behind the scenes section. So this will be where Mike chucks me that nice music. Right, determined to not go back to the well of Michael Myers, Deborah Hill had the idea to combine witchcraft with the computer age for Halloween 3, which was set to be directed by Joe Dante. After meeting with John Carpenter, the Gremlins director had agreed to helm the film, although at that point it still wasn't a sure thing if the sequel would get made at all. Soon after, however, Dante left the project to accept Landis and Spielberg's offer of directing Twilight Zone the movie, unsure if Halloween 3 would ever materialise, allowing Tommy Lee Wallace to take the reins. I know it got a lot of bricks thrown at it because it wasn't like the first two Halloween pictures, but that was what I liked about it, Dante said in a 2014 TV Store Online interview. I don't think Halloween 3 deserved the criticism it took. I thought it was a great concept. Now, back when he was still slated to direct, Dante suggested the uh, award-winning British screenwriter Nigel Neal, who, as I said before, created the Quatermass character and was a veteran of Hammer Films. Neil wrote the first script, but ultimately asked to have his name removed. Nigel had some lousy experiences in Hollywood, Wallace later recounted. From his perception, as a general rule, Hollywood had mangled his stuff. When he turned in his screenplay, any criticism that we gave him was going to be met with resistance. Nevertheless, Wallace praised Neil's script as moody, dark and fascinating, later estimating that close to 60% of it survived Carpenter's rewrite and his own. Deborah Hill herself suggested Tom Atkins for the role of Dr. Daniel Chalice, a veteran of Carpenter movies until this point. Atkins told Fangoria magazine back in that day, back in the day as well, uh, he liked playing the hero. He added, I wouldn't mind making a whole career out of being in just horror movies. And it's, it's done quite well for him. Stacey Nelkin, meanwhile, took the role of Ellie simply because she loved the character. She'd never seen the first two Halloween movies and when she won the role, she thought she'd better watch the previous entries and then quickly realised that they had zero connection to this one. Dan O'Hurley, for his part, meanwhile, stated that he had fun using the Cork accent of his native island and he thoroughly enjoyed making the movie, but concluded, I didn't think it was much of a picture, no. Now, the rest of the cast are entirely newcomers to the franchise. Laurie Strode herself, Jane Lee Curtis, provides two voice cameos as the woman announcing the curfew on the loudspeaker and the telephone operator. Nancy Keyes, who was married to Tommy Lee Wallace at the time uh, and plays Annie Brackett in the first two Halloween films, appears as Linda Chalice, Dan's ex-wife. While Halloween 2's Michael Myers, Dick Warner, plays an android assassin. Additionally, Atkins' wife at the time, Garn Stevens, has a role in the film playing Marge Gutman, the woman killed in the motel room by a silver shamrock badge misfire. Now, the Silver Shamrock jingle, hypnotically playing throughout the movie, is based on the melody uh, from the traditional nursery rhyme, London Bridge is Falling Down. Deborah Hill suggested it because it's catchy, and perhaps more importantly, it's in the public domain. Wallace sang it, then sped it up, Alvin the Chipmunk style, and he's also the voice of the announcer in the commercials. The jingle is played a total of 14 times in the movie. 
Now, the big Halloween 3, the masks that are advertised in the movie, consisted of two altered masks that were already in the Don Post Studios repertoire, The Skull and the Witch, and one made exclusively for the movie, The, uh, the Jack-O-Lantern. While the company was sold to Paper Magic Group Incorporated, the rights were bought by California-based company Trick or Treat Studios, and replicas of the original have been available to the public since 2014. Now, the movie takes uh, place Saturday, takes place sat- from Saturday, October 23rd to Sunday, October 31st, dating this to 1982, uh, the day of the film's release. The uh, they're chronologically accurate. Not only that, but in a mirror to reality, the uh, the children in the movie are told to wear their masks and watch television at 9 p.m. on Halloween night. In our world, the movie Halloween, the 1978 original, was broadcast on NBC at 9 p.m. on Sunday, October the 31st, 1982. When Cochrane orders one of his humanoids to uh, roll the Silver Shamrock commercial to the Kupfer family while they're being held in test room A, he presses the number 666 on the keypad. So, you know, let's ram that home. Uh, the majority of the movie takes place in the fictitious California town of Santa Mira, the same setting as the 56 classic Invasion of the Body Snatchers as a nod to that movie, proving that some residents just do not learn their lesson. See also, you know, Gotham City and the town of Midsummer. The Silver Shamrock factory was actually a milk bottling plant in Leta, California. In recent years, the factory has been closed and marked for demolition due to being structurally unsound, which has resulted in souvenirs of the factory, i.e. bricks, turning up in enterprising eBay and Etsy stores all around the world. For Halloween, three fans to own a piece of movie history. And if anyone out there has a spare one, please let me know at the usual address. Now, despite the movie being seen as a failure back in 82, when Dennis Etchison, using the pseudonym Jack, uh, pseudonym Jack Baker, wrote the novelization and released it that same year, the book proved to be a hit. It became such a bestseller, in fact, that the novel was reissued once again in 84. Now, Tom Lee Wallace blamed the studio's discomfort with the movie's dark ending for the weak marketing. Going back to what you were saying here, Athena. Uh, Wallace recounted in an interview with Yahoo, according to him, Carpenter stated, Your ending is your ending. It's up to me, but I'll leave it in your hands. You decide. And I didn't think about that for a long time before I said, Let's leave it as it is. And as soon as that decision was made, Universal gave up and decided not to support the movie. Though as negatively as Universal did view it, it could have been much worse. There's a rumour that the original ending credits rather than music would have played the sounds of screaming children dying. Ultimately, Wallace chose to cut to black before revealing whether Dr. Chalice was able to get the uh, the TV commercial to stop playing, leaving the ending ambiguous. However, Atkins himself emphatically says Chalice was able to save all of the children on that fateful night. At the Horror Hound convention in 2017, when asked if he was able to stop the commercial, Atkins answered, you bet your sweet ass I did. So, yeah, that's good enough for me. So, uh, yeah, I'm guessing uh, you guys knew the majority, if all of that already, but was there anything among that pile of trivia you weren't aware of? 
I didn't know that about Tom. There's a lot said of that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't know that that Tom had said, you know, he'd confirmed that he saved the day. And that is such a Dan Chalice thing to say, you know? <laughs> he he loved that's something I love about that character. You know, we had talked a little bit about the movie and you had asked about, you know, did you have a favorite character? And I think most people, because Dan's so front and center in that they don't get into Ellie as much as they think they possibly could have but that could have been you know maybe not having the budget or the script or whatever or, or just so much on him and um I think like most psychological horrors it taps a little into okay this guy has got some troubles going on in his life you know the you know having this troubled uh, marriage in the past and then ellie comes into his life a little bit the mystery woman it reminds me of blade runner you know like someone a woman coming in i need your help and that classic detective uh story that he finds himself wrapped up in but he does take on that um action hero idea of oh you know i'm out here to save the day i'm out here to save the kids get rid of the bad guy and that's awesome that he told everybody yeah yeah i did it yeah <laughs> <I'm a> hero <laughs> he could it. tell me day is night and i would believe i would believe tom atkins he's like that <laughs> he's like that granddad that you just want that just kicks ass everywhere hmm. what about you andrew no that's um largely all new to me um i but it's it's made me appreciate it even more, to be honest. Um, I love all the stuff about him confirming that you know he saved everyone. But I I do love the ambiguous ending because if you're waiting for it to go off, you're waiting for that last that last repetition for it to just roll the credits. There, I thought was a really nice touch, a really mean but nice touch. Um, but I I love it that he confirmed that. One thing that um, um, I don't think was mentioned was that John Carpenter did the score with alan howarth for yeah. this so he yeah. may not have directed the movie but he did uh, have a large hand in the not that he's got large hands maybe he has <laughs> i don't know um in doing the score for it and if you listen to the closing theme over the credits i did notice that there are some little motifs of the halloween theme in there but mixed with what sounds like the peter davis and doctor who theme um, so it, I it's like pick the two up on that. I have to go back and re and re and re listen to that. It's on my it's on my MP3 player. It's one of the soundtracks that is, is there, but I've never picked up on that, so I have to do that. Give it a go. The, the closing titles, the closing titles. It's it's like he's it's like Delia Darbush is playing the Halloween theme. <laughs> oh my god! See, that's a selling it's point really right good. there. Um, but yeah. It is. It's good, isn't it? But I, I really like that. I really like the um, the discordant soundtrack and how the soundtrack is used throughout the film. As a, a um, um, there's a lot of repetition of very short phrases of like two or three notes, and that repetition causes tension to build. I thought in in a lot of scenes, uh, especially when he's when um, Doctor Chalice is in the factory, and you don't know if he's going to get through the ventilation shafts. You don't know. If he's going to get out of any of it, and he goes and sabotages the machinery, um, there's a lot of um, quite urgent repetition of very simple musical phrases in there that add a lot of atmosphere to it. I thought and add that otherworldly feel to it as well. Brilliant, yeah. That's I mean, we, we do have a a section for the sound design, but 
it's oh sorry <laughs> no 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 no, no. I, didn't, I didn't mean it in that way you've brought it up and i think that's it's it's really good it it's to my mind i i know that the uh you know the the main halloween theme from the first movies it's it's iconic uh but i mean there's, there's not been a single soundtrack carpenter's done that i do actively dislike but mm. i do find this one as you're saying so fantastically creepy uh, that yeah, I mean, I've got it with me wherever it goes because it's 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 just a mood. I think the sound design is really well done on this on this movie. It fits it really is, well with it. It does things like the little jingle that plays when they're announcing curfew. It just I don't know if it, if it's a result of me seeing it when I was young, but it just kind of fills me with dread. Mm. I mean, I should note to regular listeners that if it no, does I, sound. I yeah, that if it sounds suspiciously like hyperbole, that now on every movie we've covered lately has been making the statement, it's always on my player. It's because they pretty much are. The vast majority of my playlist these days is soundtracks to these movies, and it is in no way bullshit. It's 100% true. Man, you so, even breathe this stuff. I know that. I, I know that anyway. You're the real deal. You, you walk the walk. <laughs> See, it's, that, it's the this is the thing, mate. I, I think that about you. With you know, without trying to sound like this is turning into a loving, I just think if if there's anybody that's that we should get on this show, <laughs> it's Andrew because <laughs> this guy knows his shit. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Anytime, buddy. <laughs> so I've got, I've got to ask you, ask you both. I mean, you, you hinted at it earlier. It's now over forty years old. This movie. Do you think it still holds up? I would say absolutely. I mean, I've been, I don't get on social media as much, but I know that, oh, I guess it was maybe a couple of years ago, someone started a Halloween 3 Facebook group. And, you know, this was a couple of people from, I had met from a horror group. And we just, you know, talk about all kinds of movies that we're watching and just post up a poster and someone will leave a comment like, oh, yeah, you know, I saw that. I loved it. Or oh, I haven't seen that yet. Is it worth watching? That type of thing. Pretty casual or post up a few jokes. And um, so this group I was in had thousands of people and I was surprised. I mean, I think it was over 20,000 people. And I was like, wow, this has a real following, this group where, you know, it was so cool. The people that ran it, they didn't just post up, oh, you know, watch this movie or whatever, like a casual group. They posted up um, fan art they had made. They posted up, uh, you know, things they had made, T-shirts they had made, um, records, uh, everything. I mean, they were super into it. And it was really cool that there was sort of this cult around this cult classic, you know. And it's kind of funny to see things like that. Uh, when people are that into one film and how they'll just sit around and talk about it, you know, as much as they possibly can, that's kind of their thing. So I would say that as long as a movie has any type of following, has people who will gather around and say, oh yeah, did you see XYZ? I loved it too. And the internet gives us that availability to do that over a film um, or a filmmaker, or a book, or any topic that we want to talk about, then I think something is always going to hold up. And it's just because of the internet, nothing is ever going to die. You know, I think that um, 
there's movies that I'll look up sometimes. Like I love strange things. So I'll look up, you know, weirdest movies of all time, weirdest video games of all time, the, the strangest things you can find on YouTube and finding, I find so many other people will gravitate toward those same things that I like, you know, things that interest me and, and want to talk about it and say, oh yeah, this is so creepy. Want to hear my experience? Want to hear what I think about this? So I think this is always going to be something that people are going to enjoy year after year. And because of the creative design of the movie, because of Silver Shamrock being a cool name, because of having this cool logo, I used it for my avatar because it's so neat. People like to make buttons out of it. People like to recreate the mask. They use this in movies. I know there's a movie called The Guest and um, it's kind of another plot twist type movie about a guy in the military who shows up in this town and nobody knows where he came from and they bring him into his this their home thinking he's like somebody's deceased um, cousin or, or relative and it's got all these plot twists. He took the masks from uh, Halloween 3 and used them for a Halloween party in that film. And that's another kind of cult plot twisty, you know, type film. So I think that people are always going to enjoy this film for what it is, you know, being on the internet, other filmmakers. I think they're going to take elements from it and continue to enjoy that and expand on it, which was something that I noticed when I was young because it has those um, ambiguities because it doesn't tell you the full story. I think a lot of people are like, why did the villain do this? You know, what was going on with him? Who is this guy? He's not He's not Michael Myers. He's not Jason Voorhees. He's not Freddy Krueger. Who is this weirdo? <laughs> so, and that I think our culture here in America, we don't know enough about overseas. We don't know enough about Ireland and some of their history. Bringing in some of that, that Celtic witchcraft and that mythology is so, so cool for us. You know, we loved it and The Wicker Man is still so huge here. That's always going to be a huge film and a huge cult based around that film. Not not the Nicolas Cage one as much as I love him. Oh, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Ah! I love my eyes! My eyes! Ah! That movie is ridiculous. Um, I think it's it's always going to be something people love. It's always going to be notable for the artistic design. And it sounds like you two really do know a lot about the sound design. Um, my only comment on that is Silver Shamrock, that theme is so clever because it takes London bridges. It makes it a little bit unrecognizable. And it does that something that's so creepy in most horror films is it sounds like children are sort of singing or that high-pitched singing and it makes it almost that alien type music. You know, it's you don't know where it's coming from. It's so catchy. And I find myself singing it a lot. And I'll post it sometimes online or something like how many days until Halloween, Silver Shamrock. And people laugh because they recognize that. They know what it's from. Brilliant. What about you, Andrew? You think it still, uh, still holds up? I would say that parts of it have, have dated. But on the whole, it holds up far better than most of the Halloween sequels that brought back Loomis, like in 4, 5, and 6, or Laurie Strode in 7. It's definitely better than Resurrection. By Christ. Um, <laughs> I do think it holds up in a lot of ways, the ambiguous ending. Um, it chimes well with a lot of things like um, 
conspiracy theories about what technology can do to people's minds. Um, I was reading and watching some stuff recently on the um, the myth, the urban legend of the Polybius video game. I don't know if you're familiar with that, with a, a mysterious arcade cabinet that showed up in, I think it was Portland, Oregon yeah. in 1981. I actually, I actually have a portable cabinet one of those. Wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I went... Like when that, that was on Kickstarter, I had to get involved in that. But I think it chimes well with all that sort of fear around technology and conspiracy theories that there is at the moment. What is everything for? What are, what are things doing to us as a populace? And of course, those things get blown out of um, blown out of proportion. But this has the feel of something that is referred to as an urban legend. It seems like something has been like an urban legend has been recounted and made into a movie. That's what this feels like to me. I think. It was a really brave move to do something that didn't have Michael Myers in it, um, especially after the success of the, the first two. Like you said earlier on, it was it was intended as like an anthology series, and I think that would have been far better than just retreading the old ground over and over and over again. So the adding the different elements like the like the Silver Shamrock song, which speaks to people on quite a primal primal level with the repetition of it it's going to get creepy the idea of the uh, the masks and everyone having to watch at 9 p.m with wearing the masks um that has aged well some things that haven't aged well for me some of the production design of course the you know the technology there's no social media so it, it won't have that connection to a current uh, a current generation that watches it anew um but there's one scene that um one scene that bugged me when re-watching it today uh, was when uh, they go to the motel and they're trying to figure out what's what's going on. They they pose as a couple and go to the motel, and um, and Doctor Chalice is like, I'm, I'm going to go. And, shall I go and sleep in the car or see if I can get another room? And Ellie says, Oh, why would you want to sleep in another room? And then they get together, and it's like, Mate, you've known her for like five minutes, and you're helping her track down the people that crushed her father's head. Um, <laughs> that didn't age well. That's, yeah. That sticks out a bit to me, and it's and it's it's done in such a kind of cheesy days of our lives type way as well. It's like, where do you it want is. to sleep, Doctor Alice? And you just say, oh, <laughs> you, you, you can feel other people in the room physically cringe. And, and yeah. you just like, yeah, I get it. I, I I'm joining you. It's just so cheesy. Yeah, but as a story, it holds up really well as a as a, a horror movie especially because it's not just a straightforward like witchcraft movie but it does similar things to say um well not entirely similar but it's got a sort of similar feel of mixing sci-fi and horror i would say as evil speak the clint howard movie uh, and if either of you ever seen evil speak where yeah. he um you know he carries out satanic rituals with a computer but that mix of technology and knowing the fears around technology at the time you know it's all going to enslave us which it is doing now entirely um but you know <laughs> Um, and mixing that with a witchcraft um, element, I thought that was a really nice thing to do. And it wasn't just another slasher, which is what all the other Halloweens became. Um, you know, sorry, I'll get off my soapbox now. No, no, <laughs> it's it's fine, mate. I, you know, I mean, you know, talking about the writing, I, I, it is such a refreshing approach when you look at this franchise. And yeah. they, they have done Myers to death since since this and then everyone singles this one out as well this one doesn't fit in it would have had they you know stuck with the original plan yeah and i just think it's you know, imagine it's, what they could have done with some more entries like three exactly it's such a creepy premise and i think it, it 
you know, for, for want of going into another another cult movie here, it, it takes the creep factor of Myers and turns it up to 11. Because, you know, My, Myers is just a, a guy roaming the neighbourhood with a knife. Cochrane's plan is, yeah. yeah, let's just kill everyone. And Cochrane is getting into people's homes directly. It's not like one person that you can run around a corner from, away from. It's everywhere so everyone be watching tv all the kids will want to watch tv in their masks because that's what they do I, I still do it i like to go and frighten my neighbors when the kids are trick-or-treating um <laughs> just mainly because I, I hate my neighbors um but they uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's all part of the fun of it and it's such a shame that it is seen as this odd child you know this black sheep of the family because it's it's really good and it is tons better than what came after it yeah yeah, I'll I'll back you up on that hundred percent. I think, as like as uh, Athena mentioned earlier, I do like the fact that it's taken from uh, a Nigel Neal screenplay, and you do get that vibe, especially when it comes to the ending. That it's it's hard to describe to to people these days who are incredibly jaded when it comes to horror movies, and. You know, what was once effective is now seen as, you know, just a trope kind of thing. But when you see this as a youngster and you you have no idea what's going on, all you know is that it's bad. There is something bad happening. And until those revelations start coming through, I think the atmosphere in this one is miles better. To, to me, anyway, and, I, you know, I'm going to be sacrificed on the altar of Myers for this, but... I think it's <laughs> much more atmospheric as a film than Halloween, the original. Not a huge fan of slasher films. I've seen them all because I think it's part of, you know, um, the horror genre and being someone that runs a horror group, you know, online. I want to know what I'm talking about. And sometimes I'm also a person who, I'm not going to lie, sometimes I'll just watch something because it's it's there. You know, like my friend, he's um, one of those, oh, you know, cinematic, you know, very into the the classics and, and very into, you know, the uh, I guess um, certain films, he knows his knowledge of film is just, I mean, it blows me out of the water. And then I'm a person who will just, you know, watch Sleepaway Camp too and be like, oh, I love this movie. So it's it's kind of funny that, you know, I feel a little bit uncultured with my friend and we kind of laugh about the difference between the two of us in that way. But um, I don't like slashers because I feel like you said they're trope, they get overplayed. Um I want something to kind of shock me a little bit or make me wonder, even while Sleepaway Camp, yeah, everybody's going to get slashed. At the same time, there's sort of those plot <laughs> twists about the villain and who they are and blah, blah, blah. And like, oh, okay. And same with other films. Some slashers will try to kind of trick you, twist you. You're thinking it's, okay, it's this person is the bad person. And then it turns out to be someone else and they've got this backstory. My only, I think, you know thing that I took away from Silver Shamrock with the villain was, well, I love that actor and he's amazing and I'll, um, so much credit for him for being also in Twin Peaks. He was Andrew Packard. Um, Connell Cochran, I don't feel like he's very defined as a villain. I feel like in the same way that Ellie just falls into Tom's arms at the motel, um, you know, Tom gets strapped to a chair and Cochran just gives him, well, here's all my evil plans. And you're kind of like, okay, why? <laughs> <laughs> like, 
okay, we get it. You're the villain. You look like a villain with, you know, your suit and your, your, um, no, even his hairdo looks like he's a villain. So <laughs> he just has that villain <laughs> style, but, um, it's kind of like, okay, so you're a witch. Okay. Um, you, something about, um, well, he wanted to, you know, do something on Sam Hain. That was this great trick, you know, and, and get everybody. And it's kind of like, okay, you know, it's, it's scary. It's creepy. The film gives you that hopelessness vibe and, and everything adds to that. But at the same time, I feel like a lot of the characters, Ellie, Cochran, um, other people in the movie, they're not really fleshed out. No. No. I mean, it, it, it's essentially like a big three in here with, you know, Tom Atkins and Stacey Nelkin and, you know, Dan O'Haley. Uh, I, I do think they do really well, though. I mean, well, I'll, I'll get to you guys. What do you, what do you think to, you know, my, mine and everyone's favourite granddad, Tom Atkins? I think he was fantastic. <laughs> I, I loved him. Um, I didn't really buy him as a doctor. <laughs> Apparently, he's a bit too much of a badass. But uh, I thought he was great in it. Um, but yeah, Dano Dano Helley, with him being um, OCP guy as well in RoboCop, that's my main point of reference for him is RoboCop. So it's like OCP guy is trying to kill all the kids. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I I thought they did really well with what they had. Um, there's there's a few bits that haven't aged well. There's a few little rough rough edges to the production, but it has so much charm and so much atmosphere that it's criminal that it doesn't get more respect, I think. Yeah. I, I, I don't... I, I love the fact... Well, not so much love the fact, but it's just that everybody sees Dan Chalice in this as this, this man's man. And it's not just Ellie who want to jump into it, but you kind of get that vibe later on when he's talking to his friend. And she says, oh, you owe me a lot of dinners. And he says, "Oh, I'm already, I'm always ready for dinner with you." And you think, "My it's God, this guy's a mustache." <laughs> yeah, it's totally the mustache. See, this is why, this is why people just fling themselves at him. Same thing with Chuck Norris. It's, it's like, look at the manly stash. No one can compare to that. Tom, Mac, you know he's going to save the day because he's got the reliable tash. It's Magnum PI in a cardigan. Oh my goodness, yeah. It makes you want to grow one and then just go and sit in a bar and have some like nubile people approach you. Yeah. One thing I and, love you know, about... They will come up and see you with a beer and say, man, you've seen some things, haven't you? Yes, but they've always been slightly obscured by my touch. <laughs> one thing I love too about Dr. Dan is he doesn't just, you know, punch the bad guys in that film. There are sound effects where, I mean, it's not just like the punch sound effect, but it is like that comic book. Kerplowy, you know, I mean, it goes a whole other level when he's <laughs> kicking the androids back and punching them and taking off their heads. And, you know, when he goes into that factory, you can tell he is just like a man on a mission. He's going to save the day. He is pissed off. So he goes into that factory and he, I guess you both remember that scene where it has the grandmother knitting, you know, yeah. And he's yelling, where's the girl? Where's the girl? And uh, she gets knocked over and the head falls off and it rolls. And it's kind of funny. Um, everybody's falling into his arms at that point. He gets captured by androids and and uh, Cochran. And Cochran comes in and just, 
it's almost like he's as bad as Ellie and everyone else. He just falls right into Tom's arms. Like, let me tell you my life story. Let me talk to you. Let me, oh, that, that was an Android that I bought from Germany in, in 1706. Let's talk about it. Listen to me. Listen to all my problems. You're my new best friend. And then he locks him in this room, sticks a mask on him. And is like, let me tell you my life story. It's like, what? So it's like everybody sort of gravitates <laughs> towards this guy thinking, oh my gosh, you know, even the villain sets himself up to just blurt out the master plan to, um, you know, I mean, maybe he wanted Tom to escape and save the day and he was just setting it all up that way. Who knows? Everybody loves this guy. Yeah, <laughs> be honest. And yet, when he's, reacting he to the, when he's reacting to seeing a child die on screen, vomiting bugs and snakes, he barely reacts. He's like, oh, that's a bit rubbish. <laughs> he, clenches, <laughs> he clenches his fists. No, he clenches his fists. Right. Yeah. He wanted but to be, punch something. <laughs> but be honest. Be honest. I, be honest, if he walked into our respective rooms right now, we'd be the same. You just say, <laughs> Oh, Tom, hi. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, even, even when he foils, foils his plans at the end, he doesn't even get angry. He just like, so confused if says, he walked in here right now, mate. <laughs> There's that guy that saved the day on Halloween 3, the hero. <laughs> Yeah, he stopped the it, commercial in the end, I heard. It just it just walked through there. What's up, Andrew? <laughs> you know, oh, I've gotta go. I've gotta go. Something's terrifying come up. <laughs> I'm gonna be tricking for him in the night now. Just, just, just wait. I'm just I'm just popping downstairs, Claire. What's up, Andrew? I just want to see <laughs> in the living room. But he, even at the end, even at the end of the film when he files Cochrane's plans. Cochrane, he's not even angry about it. He just looks up at him, smiles and applauds. It's like, well done, you. <laughs> Outraged admiration. I wish I could have been a man like you, Doctor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're holding a convention uh, for Halloween, uh, 45 years of Halloween this year, and they're actually releasing a Dan Chalice action figure for it. Uh <laughs> And it does come with a beer. <laughs> I need to get one of those. I actually am going to get one. I'll send you to a picture. He's going to sit up on like a pumpkin shelf I have, and he'll be the star of the show because I mean, yeah. that's where he belongs Fantastic. front and center, you know, featured with that beer smiling and saying, you don't, you don't mess with him. Have either of you two guys seen Night of the Creeps? I have. I have. Oh, I, many years yeah. ago. Yeah. God, that's another Tom Atkins masterclass. Yeah, I can't think of anything I've seen him in that I didn't enjoy. You know, I mean, like you said, there's a lot of those B movies. And it's it's funny that, you know, you read what the critics say and, and they can be merciless. And especially on films where it's obviously really to entertain you, you know, and uh, to enjoy what they do have when something isn't a huge budget or there's production issues or they don't have certain big name stars or directors. But I think that, you know, you're going to see that with critics no matter what. I think they always are going to find some problem with something. So I, I think that that I love that you both take what you love out of, you know, this film and the other films like we were talking about. This is why I love doing this show. Because studios and general audiences will often just on, you know, poor word of mouth or a review, not even seeing the film, will write something off. And I love that 
these movies that we love, they can hold up decades and decades after any big blockbuster has long since faded into the mists of time, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. With regards Absolutely. to uh, to the to the acting, what uh, we've 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 not really gone into her as much. Uh, Stacey Nelkin as Ellie Grimbridge. What are your thoughts on on old Stacey? I think she's sweet in the movie, and um, you know, her character since Doctor Dan is everything in that movie, and the man's man and the guy's guy. We get to see him and, and his beer are basically the main characters, but she did a great job, and she she did that sort of damsel in distress and that um, Neuer, you know, darkness to her. I love that. You know, she had a lot of that going on, and she reminded me a little of the character in Blade Runner, like, oh, I need your help, or a 1930s detective story where she comes in and, and needs, you know, um, Dr. Dan to save the day. So she did a great job of, um, you know, her role, and she has a lot of her strengths in that film, but because it's so heavily featured on Dan, you know, uh, running to save her and she's she's you know he doesn't say oh you know where's my my girlfriend or my woman it's oh where's the girl you know there's she ends up becoming a little bit of a <laughs> of a what do you call it like the rescue piece the um the prize he needs to capture again or, or, or get back or whatever and it's it's interesting you know that they you know spoiler alert here um, you know, she's ended up becoming the android and he has to defeat her too because punching solves everything. So <laughs> he just, I feel like she didn't get enough screen time. But I also think with the way the movie moves and watching that recently again before the podcast to get prepared, it's a very fast pace, like an action film. So I think she just didn't have time to do more than the damsel in distress and then the android that turns on him. You know, she didn't have, they couldn't flesh her out more than what they gave her. Yeah. Andrew? I do think she, I do think she handles it well with what she's got. Um, and for the most part, Ellie's a really good character, but the, I was going to mention one shot earlier in which, which involves Ellie, which completely took me out of it, which was, uh, when she has, spoiler alert, been beheaded uh, and revealed to be an android right at the end, there's a shot where her head looks at her body and it's so comedic. It looks like Crichton from Red Dwarf. It's just, <laughs> it doesn't sit well. She had this brutal fight. You know, there's the severed arm in the car that then attacks the, uh, the then attacks Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Chalice. But um he you know, tears her head off, she dies, and well, the body dies, and then it cuts to that shot where Ellie is completely buried, so you can just see her head, and she's just a severed head, glaring at her, at her ruined robot body, and the expression that she's got in that shot is just like, bugger, didn't mean for that to happen, <laughs> it's not like frightening or dead, or it's just like, oh no, oh you, you've taken my head off uh, that <laughs> took me out of it but I, I liked her in it other than that there is an argument that's running still to this day about when exactly ellie became an android did she do it when she was kidnapped or was she an android all the way through and they've asked tommy lee wallace with regards to this and he doesn't know either so with regards to you guys what do you think is the state of play with that? Was she always an android, or do you think she was swapped out? 
Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, we all know for certain that Tom saved the day. There's like no, no, you know, question about that. But was Ellie an android is a whole other mystery. I think it was fun to think she is and that, you know, it was all a setup to draw him in because there's, you know, so many unanswered questions in that film because it would kind of be like, then why would she go and, and draw him into all that mystery and do that in the first place? You know, what would be that connection? Why was he, why was it, was it supposed to go that way for the ritual? Who even knows? Um, so, I mean, it's kind of cool to think that she was. I like well, to think that the real Ellie was somewhere in the background. They had sex, and that, though. Yeah. Oh, I know. I don't know. Well, I mean, didn't they in Blade Runner? <laughs> well, or am I thinking of a different movie? Let's, let's be honest. I mean, you know, Dan Chalice is obviously such a, what you would say, a massive <laughs> He would Android. know, surely. Even AI. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, maybe, maybe we should invite Tom on this show and ask him and be like, so if Ellie was an Android, how you know, did that work? <laughs> I have tried so many times, so many times through Tom's agent to get him on this show. This is an important question we need to have answered. <laughs> <laughs> oh. See, I... I <laughs> I uh, I watched this with uh, with my wife earlier, and I was thinking the same thing. If she isn't an android, why bother with you know the entire ruse of getting Dan involved in this? And because her father showed up at the hotel, my wife came up with the theory that you know Cochrane's just wanting to see how much he knows. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think Cochrane almost acts a little bit like he knows Dan, so maybe he was watching Dan, maybe. There's more to those two than, you know, Dan seems so thrown into everything and just handles it by, you know, acting like, you know, just pressing forward and um, handling everything by drop kicking everyone. But, I, you know, Cochran just acts so casual with him. So maybe he did set it well, up. Maybe, maybe he... Chalice is an android. Oh, that would be interesting. Oh, God, we're getting into Ridley Scott territory now. <laughs> we'll leave that. <laughs> so we find out in the end. And the episode grew by an hour. I know. Yeah. We didn't know. I mean, that's, that is some Black Mirror level stuff going on. He put the phone down after getting that last commercial turned off, and there was a little folded paper unicorn. Because <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> I've got to stand here, otherwise, my charge is not long enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, yeah, you, you brought it up a little earlier, Andrew, with regards to the effects. And I think this is where, if anything, it kind of falls down a little. Mm -hmm. uh, Especially with the laser what, effects, which have dated really badly. Yes, yes. I do think the uh, the, the makeup on, on Marge when she has the misfire is, is still quite well done. It's still effective. Uh, yes. Although apparently... Apparently, the actress that wasn't the actress in the mask. She she refused to get in the mask for that, so someone had to stand in for her. Uh, so, but yeah, when it comes to the 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 latex effects and, and things like that, I still think it holds up incredibly well. Less so the uh, as you mentioned earlier, the robot Ellie. Yes, that was um, that was a bit silly, but uh, I see what they were trying to do with the movie. I mean, the one that one that stuck out to me as being still effective was uh, when uh, when the kid um, 
falls victim to it and you've got the the uh, the bugs and the snakes and things coming out um of course he's got the mask on but the the parts of his face that are still visible which are a practical effect are still quite convincing underneath and uh, i would imagine that the the lady that was in uh, lucio fulci's city of the living dead was very jealous that they used a uh, a, pro- a prosthetic for that instead of making her vomit sheep's innards out of her actual neck. yes um <laughs> so that was that was quite convincing although there's some stretching around the mouth that you could see it's latex towards the end of a couple of shots but yeah, that was really convincing I, I think that's aged pretty well yeah i'm less convinced with the uh hoist by his own petard cochrane at the end where he turns into that like kind of almost angelic white there's also that brief shot where he's melting like the dude from Raiders of Lost Ark. Yeah, his demise is really strange. I mean, the way that all the androids, too, are taken out, you know, when they drop everything. And and um, it just, you know, it's interesting. It's kind of cool because he's going through that, you know, the factory almost like a character in a side-scrolling action game. Just, you know, getting everything done. And then there's the big villain fight. But... I would say that part with Cochrane is a little bit like, huh, okay, you know, he has to go now. His home planet needs him. And um, <laughs> it's just also left a little bit like, what? So, yeah, there's there's just some scenes in there that are strange. But I would also say that scene is still really powerful where the mask almost looks too like it's melting on the kid. Like, he looks like he's melting. And the way he yeah. kind of, they have that actor fall over just adds to it with his movements. Um that was really, really powerful and amazing. So, and especially when you're a little kid and you already are going to have a fear of bugs and snakes and, you know, that's going to be amplified. That is powerful. Rewatching that, you know, watching that scene with Marge, what struck me still is the most gruesome wasn't even like her eye, you know, exploding and the blood and all that. It was a scene where that insect crawls up her face and goes into her hair was the most terrifying to me. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, like especially when, you first when see she... the cockroach just coming out and creeps, Joe. Oh yeah. God! Ooh. Oh, don't get me started on that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus! So yeah, that that leads us into the uh, the direction. And um, what did you think to Tommy Lee Wallace's direction on this? I liked it. I thought it was. I thought it was pretty strong. It did. Uh, he tried some different things um, that did separate it from being quite so much of a straightforward action movie with like a sci-fi horror element um and i think he tried to not emulate carpenter's style but elongate some shots there was a bit more time for tension to build up i mean it's not a particularly long film it doesn't take too long to get where it's going um but there's some just some shots that are held a little bit longer which is a bit of a carpenter thing to do just to linger on the the building dread um, you know, is there something going to come around this corner? Is there going to be a jump scare? And elongating things a little bit makes you less aware of when that scare is going to come. I think that's that was a uh, that was something I picked up on rewatching it today. That there's there were some nice little uh, direction parts there. That could well be the editor, to be honest. That could be well yeah. be the editing rather than the the on set direction. I did. Th- there was one little sequence that stood out for me. The little tracking shot once uh when dan gets what turns out to be robot ellie and they're trying to escape from the factory and the lighting in the corridor and the tracking shot as it's following down it's very oppressive and i think that 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 was a very effective little sequence of shots with regards to that one yeah 
I think I know the one you mean. Yeah. Lighting uh, plays just... a big role in these things. Though. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> one one thing I will uh, mention, it, the, uh, the section where he throws the... Even while he's tied there, he throws the mask on the security camera. Took, <laughs> and it goes over perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it it was actually done. Uh, it took over forty eight. For, oh, sorry, it took over forty takes to get that shot. Uh, he Tommy Lee Warris revealed during the cast twenty fifteen reunion that the scene took longer than he expected. And what was so infuriating is that when uh, he was, you know, describing how the shot should take place, uh, during that little section, he playfully tossed the mask and it caught on the camera on the first try. So, <laughs> yeah, it then took another 40-odd takes to get that. But, uh, but yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. So what about you, Athena? Anything you've, uh, you've got with re notes with regards to the direction? I think that the director had a lot of fun with this movie for, you know, as hopeless as, as the feeling is for as we get this feeling of, you know, constant dread that there's always that plot twist of something's bad, something's wrong, something is about to happen. Um, he keeps it really upbeat in a way that's, you know, really interesting because it's still, you know, the characters uh, continue to press on and, um, yeah, he has a lot of fun with it. With every, almost every single scene, he's sort of saying, you know, while some stuff, as we talked about, does go over the top, I think that it's it's almost like a horror film done joyfully. Nice. So, I mean, with regards to this, we, we've we've looked at pretty much most things. Do you think it deserves its its cold classic status? And I'll, I would I'll say yes. Yeah. Absolutely. What about you, Andrew? Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. It doesn't get enough respect, this. There was a rumour uh, of one of the shots. Uh, have you seen Halloween Ends, Andrew, by the way? No, no. I uh, haven't seen any of the most recent three because I'm so bored of Michael Myers, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I will say I didn't. I, I'm not a big fan of the, the the Myers movies, but I did like this last trilogy. And both Mike and myself, we we were one of the people that actively do defend Halloween Ends. We think it's a good one. We think it's mm -hmm. unfairly like this. It's unfairly maligned. Uh, but there was I'll a rumor. Yeah, it's 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 worth it. You might you might sit there and go, what the you know halfway through but it, it's worth it's worth a couple of hours of your time but this is the, the weird thing is there was a rumor uh i'm not sure how far it got that in during the scripting section uh when it when the, there's a there's a scene with regards to like a a radio tower and mm -hmm. the rumor was that uh, during the scripting at the end uh, Michael dies near this radio tower and at that point it cuts to the Silver Shamrock factory in Santa Mira and the production line starts pumping out Myers masks how far oh, that got I like that I would have loved to have seen that nice. that would have yeah I would have I would have I would have it would have instantly instantly you know put it right up there unfortunately it didn't go with it so Aside from having a couple of masks 
from from this one in the recent trilogy there's not really much of a link so it still remains kind of the isolated uh, entry in the series and i think it's it's unfair so uh so yeah i th i think we've pretty much covered everything but before we do move on is there anything either of you think that we may have missed that warrants attention I think we covered everything and we, you know, left questions too for the, yeah, the viewers who do decide to give it a watch who haven't seen it yet or decide to, you know, watch it again for this time of year and enjoy it or, you know, or decide to reach out to people online if they say, oh, you know, I want to see what people are saying about it on YouTube or on Facebook or whatever, you know, and, or decide to throw up, hey, I'm watching this, you know, and, and uh, post a picture on Instagram. You never know who you're going to, you know, inspire to say, oh, yeah, you know, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the theories in it. And that can be a lot of fun for people. I think that's much more entertaining with everything going on in the world. You know, have some fun and get involved in some mystery. And I think this movie's a good opportunity for it. I love that. I love that. That's a fantastic I have a lot of love for John Carpenter. I love John Carpenter, but I, I do think this one is my favourite of the Halloween movies, personally. And uh, I, anyone that hasn't seen it, I do urge you to check it out, even though it doesn't have Michael Myers in it. It's well worth a watch. It is something very different. And come on, be a completist. See all of them. He says, having not watched the, the, the last trilogy. <laughs> awesome. Well, as usual, we'll uh, we'll go now straight into our favourite character line and scene from today's movie. And we'll start with... Favourite character. So, Athena, who's your favourite character in this one and why? My favourite character is Dr. Dan because at the end he yells, stop it! And it's just so classic because it's almost like um, it reminds me of Charlton Heston and Planet of the Apes screaming, oh, you animals! It's really iconic. And, you know, and for being a cult film that doesn't have the greatest reviews that does has gotten bad mouth, the way that he does it and the expression on his face just um, made, makes the whole movie for me that, you know, I know that I'm going to watch the movie and enjoy it. But the ending is the part that's going to be that, you know, we've we've waited for that big giveaway. And there it is. He's screaming on the phone. You know, is he going to save the day? You know, here's, you know, Dr. Day on the superhero what's he gonna do so i would say that that's my favorite line and character fantastic and uh, what about you andrew who's your uh, mvp in this one um aside from dr dan's mustache who by far <laughs> is the greatest thing in the film um i'm not to be not to be awkward but i i really liked the androids um, because for the most part of the movie until the yellow gunk starts getting pumped out of and start pulling wires out it's not obvious what they are. Are they men in black type of characters? Are they androids? Are they aliens? Um, you know, and they're so cold when they're crushing heads and what they're so cold. And then they just wipe their hand on the curtain or just drop the body and just wander off. It's, um, it's quite a striking visual, you know, the smart suits, the, the slick hair and the, the dead expressions, um, it is, it is a little bit like watching a party political broadcast, but it's also quite creepy. Well, just as creepy as watching a party political broadcast. <laughs> um, I, I really like the androids, especially because they didn't talk. That makes them creepier. I, I do love the, the fact that you can get, say, three quarters of the way through this and still not have an idea as to what's going on until those revelations yeah. start coming. 
And I, I think that's why it's so it's so effective. It's not just a guy in a mask. It keeps you guessing, and I love that. So, uh, yeah, uh, my favourite character, I don't see how it could be anyone but Dan Chalice. I mean, it's not that he's pretty much the only standout protagonist, but it's also down to his traits and the way Atkins plays him. I mean, he's far from perfect. He's, his flaws are blatantly centre stage, but he doesn't pretend to be anything other than what he is. And all the mysteries in the, in the world is not going to stop him from his lifestyle choices. And I love that. So, to me, it's Chalice every time. Dan Chalice. <laughs> You've, got to say it. You've got to say it with a dramatic, like a, an ex explosion behind you. I'd imagine when he walks out of the bathroom in the morning, there's an explosion behind him. And he just looks back over one shoulder, gives a smirk. How do you imagine, how do you imagine that's just job come out in, done in well. general? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what's, what's your favourite line then, Andrew? Um, it's got to be the, the same as Athena, where he's just yelling, turn it off, you know, when he's, when he's trying to get him to stop it at the end. Because the repetition, again, is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? Then it doesn't. And... Um, yeah, it's, that's the same one for me. That's nice. the same for me. Uh, before that, aside from that, I think possibly when Cochrane is giving his life story, oh, this was 3,000 years ago. You don't really know much about Halloween. You thought no further than the strange custom of having your children wear masks and go out begging for candy. of the year in our old Celtic lands and we'd be waiting in our houses of waters and clay. The barriers would be down, you see, between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in to sit by our fires of turf. Halloween. The festival of Samhain. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. Most yeah. More of the Irish accent comes out and, uh, you know, the facade slips and you get a bit of a, a look at what what he is, you know, some form of ancient being. Um, and you get, you know, oh, this is more primal. This is, this isn't your modern thing. This is, this speaks to something more primal and far darker that you don't understand. And, you know, he talks about Samhain and the origins of what's, uh, what's going on, but never really gives everything away. And I thought that was kind of powerful. But, yeah, it's got to be, turn it off, turn it off. Nice. I'm, I'm in, uh, yeah, in contradiction to, to your, your guy's choice, although, you know, you touched upon it, Andrew, I do love the line. Mr. Comfort was right, you know. I do love a good joke, and this is the Best ever. A joke on the children. There's something terrifically oh, creepy yeah. about the way that. So I have to go with that one myself. So alternatively, uh, you could always go for so where do you want to sleep? <laughs> <laughs> if, if you're not careful, Michael edit it. So that is your favorite line. <laughs> <laughs> go for your life, man. <laughs> So, uh, what's your favourite scene? And again, I'll start with you, Athena. 
Oh my gosh, there's a few. Oh, that's hard to pick one. Um, you know, scariest, obviously, when the child's uh, mask starts melting, and the that one is just so well done. And the actor, the child actor, did a great job falling over. And I think he's a little bit bratty too in that scene. So you're kind of like, oh, this brat. And then, whoa, okay, didn't need to see that happen. Um, while the ending scene is so iconic, you know. I'm trying to think if there's one that I would say is just my favorite. I would say it's when he walks into the room, the one that I would give like my, the one that I'm really, really enjoy. And that I look forward to seeing and it sticks with me too is, and he sees the grandmother knitting and he's yelling, okay, you know, where's the girl? Where's Ellie thinking, okay, this is this plot against him. And they took her and he has to, you know, interrogate everybody. And he doesn't realize it's an Android. Um, they did a good job with how, you know, lifelike all of the androids are. I know Andrew talked about that earlier where you think, okay, are they aliens? And it reminds me a little bit of the movie um, Phantasm where you're thinking, okay, who is this guy? He's got that dark suit, that just pressing forward attitude, mm -hmm. that coldness, that cruelty of everybody. And he's just out there. He's, uh, you know, it's, he's slashing everyone, but it doesn't have slasher film because you're like, wait a minute, uh, where's this guy from? What does he want? What's he doing? Uh, why is he doing this? You know, why is he doing it with so much evil behind him? So yeah. I would say that I like the way that, you know, when he knocks over that or the android falls over, the grandmother who is knitting, um, you know, he starts to watch those wheels turn and the movie focuses in on that. So you're looking at these wheels turning. And then Tom, you know, gets captured shortly after, but there's sort of this look of confusion on his face. And um, it's, you know, you might want to stereotype Dr. Dan as the man's man who's like, wait, what's going on here? This isn't something I can punch and kick. So it's kind of cool in a way, though, that you're like, you're still trying to figure it out. So I would say that's a scene that's probably my favorite out of all of them. Cool. What about, uh, what about you, Andrew? Um, on a far less thoughtful and well-measured note than Athena's, um, I would say when the two droids grab hold of the um, the drunk that knows something is afoot with the factory and pull his head off, um, there is once they've removed his head and thrown it aside, there is a remarkably satisfying thud as it lands off camera. And I thought, oh, yes, that was nicely done. So that, that really stuck out for me re-watching it today. But it... Aside from that, all the all the obvious ones like the the melting mask, um, the uh, the the advert getting played over and over again. I I liked the um, also like towards the end when he's trying to get the station shut down, and you see the the ad start to go out, and it starts to get to the bit with the the flashing effect that causes it to happen. And I loved the tension in that. You know, is he going to do it or not? Um, but yeah, that and someone getting his head ripped off because I am that shallow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to... I struggled with this one at first because there are quite a few iconic scenes, but watching it today, it's it struck me. And my favourite scene now is the uh, the Halloween evening montage. It kind of... It takes you out of the, uh, the, that, the small confines of Santa Mira and shows you just how far... The problem spread, you know, it cuts to Dayton, Ohio, and New York, and yeah. Omaha, and how screwed everyone is. And despite all the revelations that you've just had, that's when the full horror of the situation hits you. And I just, that just gets to me every time. So, yeah, I'm going to go with that one. It's like a Stephen King so, sort of moment, isn't it, that one? It is. It is. And it, it, 
it's not a, it's not a memorable scene, but watching it today, that's where it strikes a chord for me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we'll give our uh, our final scores in a moment. But as you regular listeners know, before that happens, we come to you out there in the real world to see what you think of this one with our audience participation section. And holy shit, did you guys not disappoint with this one? In all my time here at Mike's Podcasts, we have never, and I mean never, had such an overwhelming response to an audience participation section. We were inundated with uh, your opinions, good and bad, so much so that I had to draft in our regular guest slash co-host Sandy Evenson for this one. So without further ado, uh, quite a few this time, Sandy, huh? There are a bunch. Yeah. I, I do have to add that if we don't read your response, please do not be disheartened. We went through and read every single one of your responses, and the only reason we couldn't include them is for time. Otherwise, we'd be another 30 minutes on this one alone. Isn't that right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, over to you, Sandy. Well, some people just gave their scores. And so I thought I'd start there and then go into the more thoughtful responses. And we're starting at the low point. Some people just did not care for this film at all and gave it a zero, including John Campbell and Greg Budzinski, who said it's just not good horror. But he admits the best part is the music. And we found that in a lot of negative responses. A lot of people really did like the music. Uh, giving it a 2.5 was Harry Koslowski Doyle and giving it a three were Phil Jones and Andrew Manley. A 3.5 was given by Mark Small. He said it's his favorite Halloween movie and Rob Hall also gave it a 3.5. Giving it a solid 4.0 were Sean Roberts and Terrence Twight. And giving it a 4.5, Timothy Benedict, Thomas Emerson, Joseph Lee, stating it was just too short, and Travis Spain. Now, a 4.8 was given by Daniel Porter in true Sandy fashion. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, of the fives, we have a ton of people who just, you know, wanted to basically say that they felt it was a five out of five stars, but didn't have a a lot of of things to expand on. And that's uh, John Bisco Taft. Jason Smith said most definitely a five. Uh, John Chirico. Uh, Tony Chirico, excuse me, Jesse McLaughlin, Ben Walker, Don Nicole, Vim Fuego, Matt Chapman, Harold Pridemore, Robert Smooth, Kelly Gormley, Corey Daniel Foster, Fred Bucci, Amanda Ruiz, Derek Tate, Bart Barris, Eric Thompson, Ray Blanchett, Scott Spaulding, Wayne Wisenant. Aiden Vara, Bobby Lee Stamper, Martin McRae, Cog Harnum, Keith Wallenberg, Stephen Goswell, Benjamin James, Bonnie Guillot, Kenneth Bowers, Tim Walker, Travis Baker, Stephen Giroux, Frank Vickers, 
Amy Rhodes Childs, Mark Horn, Richard Alfaro. And then this one's extra special. Uh, Keith McCoy gave it five out of five pumpkins. So that <laughs> sets it apart. Some people who did give it a five uh, did comment. They felt that the film's misunderstood, um, that that was a significant thing to them. So some more um, thorough responses. And by the way, uh, DK was mentioning on Facebook and everything, just very thankful for that response. That was a, a lot of people just to begin with um, giving us that. Um, Richard Alfaro, he said they should do sequels, prequels, spinoffs, a TV series, cartoons, and comic books based on Halloween 3. I love the way they mixed in elements of horror, sci-fi, and fantasy in one movie. And obviously he gave it a five out of five stars stating he loves it. Uh, w. Duke White liked it because it was dark and nihilistic. Aaron Harper gave it a 3.5 out of 5. He said it was a solid 80s movie for something different. And Andrew Thomas Mohammed felt it was the best of the entire Halloween franchise. Although that sparked a bit of debate, I see. <laughs> <laughs> Brett Freeman said he really enjoyed it. Elliot Cutler, love it. The music and the feel of the film just takes me back to the 80s. This, The Fog, and The Creep Show are my Halloween night films alone, also with Simpsons Halloweens. Um, Steen Loyans says it's criminally underrated. He loves the fact that more and more people do seem to realize that each year, yet I'm still a little sad they didn't follow up on the anthology idea. Stephen Leonard says it's the only Halloween he watches. And Bill Paria, I love Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. It should have just been titled Season of the Witch. Then people who are diehard Michael fans wouldn't have been so upset. I think it has a great story and tells it very well. He gave it four out of five stars. And um, that's something that was um, echoed also by someone else. Um, stating that they also, you know, missed Michael Myers being in it. Uh, John Lupin says it's the second best Halloween of the franchise. If you don't believe it, you don't believe it, but move on. It's probably one of the best horror films of our time. The concept alone, absolutely brilliant. Still applicable and even more so for this day and age. Just watched it starting out my 31 Days of Horror. Uh, Whitney Moore was one who echoed the previous sentiment. It should have been called Season of the Witch. Still a great flick, though. A lot of people did talk about how they really wanted to know what Carpenter had planned, like Darian Byron and um, Damien Heaft. Um, Scott Spencer all thought it was a good movie, but they were just lamenting that that franchise didn't continue. Yeah, it's a shame. Um, Brian Ruff, the same. He said, five of five, great movie. I wish the Halloween franchise with the, went the anthology route instead of focusing on just Michael Myers. Um, and Andrew Mitso, again, the um, earlier sentiment. If it wasn't called Halloween 3 and just called Season of the Witch, it would be a hidden gem or cult classic like Night of the Comet. Uh, Chris Gibson says he absolutely loved it. He knows it gets overlooked a lot with the Michael Myers series, but as a standalone in the series, it's a fantastic five stars. Josh Carter says best sequel in the franchise still to this day. Um, 
one uh this is one i was looking for lucy horton she said she hated it the first couple of times she saw it thinking how can you have a halloween film without michael myers but she's seen it a few times fairly recently and found it a very enjoyable film so i think people who've discounted it over the years because of that might want to give it another watch because that's super prevalent in a lot of these comments uh, Bill Riley gave it a five. He said, I love this movie. The soundtrack is great. It's an interesting concept and it has a dark and haunting ending. Perfection. Uh, Brian Collett, 4.5, said, I just didn't like the robot puppets. I wish they could have come up with something else, but I really did like the story and understand that Halloween was supposed to be a series of anthologies about different aspects. A group of witches sacrificing the children on Halloween, what's not to like? <laughs> <laughs> Brian Freeman gave it 4.5 out of 5 saying I never understood the the hate um, Andrew Barry says 4 out of 5 underrated classic not a Michael Myers film a Halloween film Myers does not have the monopoly on the word an excellent <laughs> film somewhere Mike's gnashing his teeth <laughs> Uh, Mikey Ham, five out of five, loved it. It's one I go back and watch over and over and don't get bored of, but I can understand those that aren't a fan for obvious reasons. Steve Miles loves the movie score and says it needs to be watched as a standalone and not part of the Michael Myers story. Um, the last few we have here. Uh, Jason Griffiths, he was one that gave it a 4.5. He said, a great pace movie as opposed to others in the franchise. Great evil plot helps to make it a cult classic with a great fan base. Andrus L. Mailers says, uh, he gave it a five stars, one of my all-time favorites. Saw it on the big screen when it first came out and loved it right away because of how different it was. One I watch every year during the Halloween season since the days of VHS plus one of the greatest scores for a horror movie. Lightfield Lewis, it is the final Halloween movie in the actual trilogy. I look at it like a band's concept album that didn't match the success of the tried and true formula, but it's become something special over time. I actually saw it in the theater when it came out and the audience was waiting for Michael Myers the entire film until he shows up on the TV screen in a scene with Tom Atkins in the bar. He expands on that a little bit further. And um, Brian Hills, last but not least, I liked it because of what it was. Halloween 1 and 2 should have been it. No more Michael Myers. So a 5 for me. It was interesting and creepy all on its own. Wish we could have got more of that. those changed themes. So another one for that anthology series. And that is all I have for you today. That's nice. That's, uh, that's quite the broad range of views. But I think, you know mostly it's a, it's been seen in a positive light all these years later and especially as you know a holiday themed movie so to speak for the halloween season seems to get a lot of people into the mood definitely i'm, I'm one of them <laughs> so <laughs> i just want to thank you sandy uh thank you for coming in and uh and dropping that absolute truckload of, of feedback on us uh, i'm you know i'm sure you know it was a bit difficult to sort through but thank you and uh, no doubt we'll hear your uh, your dulcet tones once again soon. Indeed. Thank you very much. Y'all have fun. All right. Thanks. 
once again, thank you to everyone out there for being kind enough to share your thoughts with us. And again, I'm I'm really sorry if you didn't hear your name on this one. We really just had so many this time. It was difficult to narrow it down. Just please know that your thoughts were very much appreciated, as were some of the photos this time. I'm going to give a special shout out to uh, Justin Cubby Omley on uh, group uh, on the photo where he's stood in the presence of giants. I'm not envious at all, Justin. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, thank you all for taking part. You've demonstrated once more that this is as much your show as it is ours, and we're incredibly grateful for your interaction. So, uh, yeah, please keep it coming. And now we know what you think out there. It's time for us here to give our final thoughts on this one with our conclusion and score out of five. So this time we'll go ladies first and start with Athena. What are your final thoughts on Halloween 3 and your score out of five, please? I'm going to be very daring and say something that's going to shock everyone. I think outside of the first Halloween film, this is the best one in the series. So the first one is always going to be a standalone, uh, nothing seen like it. Some of the scenes in it just uh, shook me to the core where Lori's going house to house because Michael's after her and he's relentless and someone turns off the lights. And I mean, that shook me where, you know, the they weren't just doing the cruelty of Michael after her and that she was, all her friends had just been, you know, viciously murdered was that someone would be cold enough to um, say, okay, well, no, we're not home, go away. Um, I think that Halloween 3 keeps in that sort of uh, creepiness and coldness of um, feeling like there's no hope, like, you know, uh, you're on the run and something's going to get you and it's after you and you don't know what does it want, um, what is it, it has something maybe supernatural to it and that you're not going to win against it. There's nothing you can do except just keep running forward and hope someone is going to save the day. So I would say, uh, you know, it, well, it does have its flaws being, you know, not having the budget, not having um, Michael Myers, who was everyone's, you know, back in the 80s, too, when it was made, everybody wanted franchise villains. It's what the audience demanded. Um, and we still do a little bit of that today, but we are constantly looking for original films because we've gotten bored uh, and we we grow increasingly bored, I think, as people where we want new things, especially with anything created with art, music, and film, since it feels like everything's just been done. So, you know, despite some of the things we had touched on, like the laser things looked outdated, some of the special effects, you know, weren't aren't the greatest today and maybe weren't the greatest back then, I would give it four out of five. Nice. And uh, what about you, Andrew? What are your what's your thoughts, final thoughts, and uh, score for this one? So I'm I'm there with with Athena on many on many points there. Not just because I don't want to say much, uh, because that was a really good um, assessment of it that Athena's just given. But I I really enjoyed this. I do think it holds up better than the the other slasher centric movies in the in the series. The first one is great. Second one has, has some great moments. But I, I do think this is my favourite of the series, and I did, I did watch things like you know the Return of Michael Myers and um, Halloween Five and the Curse of Michael Myers. I'm just thinking this is just diminishing returns. I liked H two O, didn't like Resurrection, but then who did? Um, but <laughs> present company accepted. You may love it. I don't know, but I, I really enjoyed this one, and revisiting it for this was a, a pleasure. It has the the effects of dated, the style of it is dated. But the atmosphere of it hasn't in 
the slightest because it is just really effective as a creepy atmospheric um, film that's slightly ambiguous as to what's actually going on. Um, but when those little layers of the mystery are being uncovered by uh, by uh, Dr. Dan Stash, um, Chalice, not Dan <laughs> Stash, but close enough, um, that is that makes it more interesting and more compelling. And you get drawn into the uh, the driving force of him trying to stop the advert going out at that time. Um, I think it pulls you in really well. Like I said, I talked about the sound design a lot, and I loved that. Uh, it is not perfect, but there's some some of the shots we talked about and the the sudden um, intimacy moments, the sudden intimate moments that come out of nowhere, really. Um, so I would give it a solid four out of five. Fantastic. Okay, I've I've written mine here, so bear with me. But I know it's considered heresy, and somewhere my uh, silver screen co-host Mike is having a case of the vapors at this. But to me, this is the very best Halloween movie in the franchise. I'm sure that will have many discounting my view, thinking I might crack or something, but I unapologetically dig this. It's Hill and Carpenter's original vision for the franchise, and had the studio not intervened in the process of the first sequel, I love the idea that this would have been an anthology series. I love Michael Myers as much as the next guy, but this was the first Halloween movie I saw, and after something as monumental as this, a deranged killer with a knife just seems like small potatoes to me. I'm aware I'm in the minority, and to most people this one is a joke, but I love it. It's cheesy in the way that only 80s horror can be, with its threadbare plotting, occasional soap opera dialogue, and sometimes wonky effects, but it has an oppressive vibe that really puts you on edge throughout. And in that respect, I feel the production very much succeeded in making what they would class a pod movie. The first time you watch this, especially when young, you're not sure where this is going. And when the revelations come, they come thick and fast. And even now, the thing makes me shudder. Couple that with the Carpenter Howard score, which to my mind is second to none. And it has an atmosphere all its own. And that ending, oof. It's unfairly maligned due to circumstance and the fact that it doesn't feature Myers, despite the vast majority of uh, the Myers films coming after this one, but to me, this will always be a classic. And I still stand by the assertion that it had it not been a Halloween movie, or the ones that followed after had continued with the anthology, uh, and simply not chased after a quick book, it would be seen in a much better light. And I happily stand with those fellow diehard fans that rate this highly. Give me Cochrane over the shape any day of the week, but especially on Halloween. And I've given it four out of five, which, funnily enough, gives uh, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, a combined score of four out of five. So uh, how do you guys feel about that? Fair assessment, do you think? I think so. I'd say so. Fantastic. Well, I mean, considering it's now over 40 years old, and we, as well as a good portion of our audience, have had so many good things to say about it, despite its uh, its negative reception upon release. I'd state that to keep so many people enthusiastic, even now, with hindsight, it, I don't think it could be considered a failure. No, not at all. Great. Well, all that's left to do now is uh, thank our guests for joining me today. So I'd like to thank both uh, Athena and Andrew for jumping in on this one. Have you guys enjoyed yourselves? I did. No, it's been like pulling teeth, man. <laughs> <laughs> Talking to you, it's it's like 
you know, replacing my entire outer skin with razors. <laughs> I cannot stand your company. I think um, if you had, sorry, if I mean, yeah, it's Dr. great. Dan, if we had Dr. Dan here, I don't think you'd be saying that. No, no. No, I, no. I if we had Dr. Dan here, it would be a whole other. Punched into oblivion. Yeah. <laughs> We'd not be speaking to each other for a start. We'd all just be trying to get the attention of Dr. Dan. <laughs> Tell us more, Dr. Dan. <laughs> No, I've, I've had a great time, mate. Thanks ever so much for having me on. Oh, anytime, mate. Would would either of you be willing to come back and subject yourselves to another episode? Should the opportunity? If it is another people? horror movie. Absolutely, oh, yeah. and anything David Lynch, I'm here. Oh well, watch this space. So uh, we'll see what we can do with regards to that. In awesome. the uh, in the meantime, I'm uh, going to go over to you guys. Where can the listeners find you? Uh, you know, find more of your work, or just reach out to you on social media. What about you, Athena? If you want to join our horror groups, that horror group part two. So we decided to be a little cheesy and add a part two to the group uh, title. So look us up on Facebook and come on there. And um, there's also a Halloween three season of the witch Facebook group. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm on Instagram and TikTok and Facebook, so you can just look me up under Athena Williams, but I'm not on there as much. I really just like to get on there and talk about horror movies is a huge thing for me. Fantastic. And what about you, Andrew? Where can the listeners find you? Um, you can find me on most socials as at Andrew Haunt. That's Andrew Haunt with a W. Uh, you can find my books, including my current one, VHS 8 My brain revised edition over on amazon and you can find me on youtube if you my, my channel is actually at andrew haunt on youtube but my show is called planet hex so check that out on there i talk about a lot of cult movies and stuff cool well as always i'll get the links from you guys and we'll get them in the description so anybody you know wanting to start you can find you easily cool thanks nice. man so uh, as for you out there, if you're wanting in for a future episode, be it for Cult Classic, Silver Screen, or our sister Star Trek podcast, then as always, please get in touch either in the comments section or on our social media. We may be rapidly approaching the end of this season of Cult Classics, but uh, fingers crossed we'll be back next year to look at more weird and obscure favourites. So like, subscribe, spread the word. And if you're so inclined, please consider leaving us a... Uh, a small tip in our coffee account like i said last time we don't do this because it's easy we do it because we thought it would be easy we'll be back soon to round out this season i can't say exactly what with as things are still being reshuffled but we hope to at least pick up a wonka bar before we're done so stay subscribed follow us on social media and we'll be back with another strange one before you know it we hope to see you there until then it's time for the big giveaway so put on your mask, kids, gather round, and watch the magic pumpkin. Watch. Watch. You have been listening to the Silver Screen Podcast, hosted by Michael Wilson and DK. Created, produced, and edited by Michael Wilson. Behind the scenes sections and additional material produced by DK. Music by Timeless Journey. More information can be found at soundcloud.com forward slash timeless journey. 
Follow the podcast on Instagram at Silver Screen Podcast or look for the Silver Screen Podcast under Facebook groups. Links to all our social media accounts and more are in this episode's description. This podcast is available on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Silver Screen, Hit or Miss Star Trek. This has been a Mike's Podcast Production, copyright 2022. Thank you for listening. Hey there, fellow Trekkies. I'm Mike. And I'm your co-host, DK. And together, we're your guides through the vast universe of Star Trek. That's right. On Hit or Miss Star Trek, we're exploring the entire galaxy, from the classic series to the latest movies and everything in between. We're bringing you honest, but always respectful reviews of your favorite episodes and movies. We're not afraid to ask the tough questions or share our candid thoughts, but we do it with the love and respect this franchise deserves. Plus, we've got some fantastic guests on board. You'll hear from fellow Trekkies, social media sensations, and even some people working within the Star Trek universe. We had a blast talking about our favourite Star Trek moments with guests like Picard production designer Dave Blass, animated series writer Fred Bronson, and so many more. And of course, there's the geeking out. We can't help it. We're Trekkies through and through. We'll dive into the minutiae of the Trek universe, debate the Prime Directive, and laugh about the best bloopers. <laughs> it's all about the camaraderie here. We're building a community of Starfleet fans who share our passion and enthusiasm. We're not just a podcast, we're a crew. So join us on the Hit or Miss Star Trek YouTube channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's explore the final frontier together. Subscribe now and remember, whether it's a hit or a miss, it's always an adventure when you're part of Starfleet.